All right. Hello there. It's Peter Mansbridge. This is uh, the Bridge Daily with our special Wednesday edition of the podcast. Within a podcast, that, of course, is called Smoke, Mirrors, and the Truth. Bruce is in Ottawa, ready to jump in here at any moment. And our special guest is joining us from Buchanan, Michigan, which is about an hour and a half or so outside of Chicago. You'll know this name as soon as I mention it. David Axelrod is joining us, senior political commentator for CNN. He's known as that. He's known as the one of the hosts of Hacks on Tap, a very popular American uh, podcast that we get here in Canada, of course. Um, but perhaps best known as the uh, former senior advisor to uh, President Barack Obama. Uh, so, Dave, Thanks, Peter. Thanks for inviting me. Hey, no problem. Uh, let me start by actually quoting you a question <laughs> that you had a couple of nights ago. Well, always a scary premise. <laughs> well, it was actually on, uh, you know, on your, one of your uh, podcasts um, mm-hmm. where you said, what the hell is Trump up to? Now, I know we all kind of say that and we've all been saying it over the past, I don't know, few weeks, if not the last few months. Um, but I detected in your voice that it was more than just the usual, you know, he's delusional. Uh, and so oh, yeah. whatever he does is kind of crazy. But I suspected that that you think there's actually more to it than that when you're trying to figure out what's he really up to. So what's your answer to that question? Well, first of all, let's establish the premise here, which is Trump is a complicated piece of business. There are a lot of elements. One is, he, you know, he cannot accept uh, the fact that he's a loser. That is the worst thing that you could say about someone in his world, in his in, in his mindset. His father told him once that there are two kinds of people in the world. There are killers and there are losers. And you have to be a killer. And, you know, one of the things he took away from that is that um, there are no rules or laws or norms or institutions. You need respect. You need to respect. You, you do what is in your own self-interest. And the only thing that you can do wrong is that which is not in your uh, self-interest. And that's the way he's behaved in his business life. That's the way he's behaved in politics. So uh, on the one hand, I think that this is an emotional reaction. You know, I said long before the election that, that there were only two outcomes for Donald Trump. Either he wins or the election's stolen. There's no third option. There's no concession. And that we've seen. But I think there are other elements to this. First of all, he's raised a boatload of money off of this phony sham uh, claim of vote fraud. Uh, probably by this time, three to four hundred million dollars. It has been it, it, they, they presented it as uh, raising money for legal expenses to fight the fraud. Uh, but three quarters, if you look at the fine print, three quarters of it goes into a pack. Uh, political action committee that he will control. So he will leave the White House with hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars in political funds that he can use for many, many purposes, uh, you know, travel and other things, but also to advance his own uh, media and political uh, agenda. The second thing is, uh, you know, there's not, there's a, no, not a trivial chance that um, he'll be indicted by authorities, particularly in New York, who are well along in an investigation of the Trump uh, uh, organization, his business interests uh, on uh, on issues like tax fraud uh, and uh, other kinds of fraudulent representations of their finances and other things that we may not know. That is, uh, he is in a better position if he is uh, if he sets himself up as the uh, aggrieved 
loser who had the election stolen from him who is going to come back in 2024 and avenge the loss. That way, if he's indicted, he can claim that this is all about trying to stop him and stop his supporters from retaking the presidency. And then the third thing is, uh, you know, he 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 has 420 at least at least 425 million dollars in debt, personal and business debt that we know of. He can't get conventional funding. And a, a very smart person on Wall Street said to me, you know, if if these foreign actors think that he could be president again and that he's still a force in American politics, they're going to make it they're going to make it easy for him to get the money that he needs. They're going to consider that an investment. Uh, and so, you know, I think there are a lot of motivations. And, you know, one thing you need to know about Donald Trump, he, he is all these emotional issues that play out for sure. Uh, his craving for attention, his in, unwillingness to accept loss. But he also has a kind of feral genius, you know, for um, for for uh, how to scam money and how to uh, manipulate the modern media environment. I think all of that is at play right here. Um, I know Bruce wants to get at it, at least a couple of those things. So let me just ask one quick last one that dovetails yeah. off that. Um, whatever he's up to, you know, he he's not giving up. And so, you, you you know, everybody else seems to be giving up. He's not giving up, or at least he's giving the, leaving that appearance for any number of reasons, some of which you, you just mentioned. But the question becomes how much real damage is being caused to American democracy as a result of that. I mean, there's, I say real damage because there's damage that, you know, will go away in a couple of weeks or at worst a couple of months and it'll sort of become a part of the past. And then there's real damage that can have a long-term impact. What are we looking at? Well, look, look um, first of all, I've said from the beginning of the Trump presidency that, um, you know, I've, I've lived in a, uh, with many presidents with whom I've disagreed on and some on fundamental things, but never have we had a president before him, you know, with the possible exception of Nixon in my lifetime, who uh, was so, uh, so blatant about um, running down the institutions of democracy, about creating doubt about the institutions of democracy, the rule of law, uh, the, uh, the role of the media, um, you know, and the, you know, he has spent four years taking hammer blows to the pillars of our democracy. And the, the most important pillar is, is this one, uh, free and fair elections and that we observe, uh, the results of those elections. And, and, uh, so when 90, you know, 80, 90, whatever the number is right now, he says 92%, it must, I haven't seen that poll, but certainly 70 to 80% of Republicans say they think the election was fraudulent. That is a real problem. And the things that he's doing now are a problem because they establish a precedent. And here's the thing about norms. Once you shatter them, they're very hard to reassemble. And that is my concern that, you know, this becomes the norm, that if people don't like elections, that they uh, they simply cry fraud and try and uh, invalidate them. And you know, we were saved by a lot of conscientious people, Republicans and Democrats, who did their duty, who observed their oath. Uh, a lot of the Republicans, the Secretary of State in Georgia, the governors of Georgia and Arizona, I think they'd rather have cut off their left arm than, uh, you know, not uh, be able to proclaim 
uh, Donald Trump the winner in their states, but they couldn't because that's not what their states decided. And they stuck to their responsibilities and their duties. Um, you know, there were lower level election officials around the country who were, you know, had their had their lives threatened um, uh, because they they did their duty. Um, you know, but if a few of those till if a few of those people weakened, we may have had a much bigger problem here. Uh, and this was an election that wasn't particularly close. I mean, it was close in the three in a handful of states that delivered the Electoral College to Biden. But, you know, he won by 7 million votes. And even in those states, you know, he won by margins that far exceeded anything that would be, um, you know, contestable um, in a real sense. So uh, what happens if we have a truly close election? And now, you know, we've dignified 126 members of the House of Representatives signed on to a petition to the Supreme Court uh, making false allegations that have been thrown out by dozens and dozens of courts, including many judges who Trump appointed, uh, basically alleging fraud uh, because they were fearful of him and their base. That is worrisome. That is worrisome. David, if I can just jump in, uh, Peter, sure. I wanted to, um, first of all, thank you for doing this. Uh, yeah, I feel like I know here. you really well. <laughs> and you still invited me, huh? <laughs> we, uh, we in our household, and I think a lot of people in Canada, it's fair to say I'm a pollster, and uh, Trump and American politics has been the dominant story since Trump was elected. We always pay a lot of attention to American politics, but we've been hyper-attentive uh, in the Trump years, and um He's been a, a kind of an inflection point in some of the political discussion here, but there are some other things that I think we're starting to wonder uh, whether they're they're broken in your country and whether they're on their way to being broken in our country. And you use the term norms. I sometimes think about guardrails. Yes. In the in the way that we carry on our conversations about public policy and politics. And for me, Trump said about. Uh, dismantling the guardrails it was his mm -hmm. use of twitter and the way that he campaigned for the nomination and the the name calling and all that kind of yeah. stuff which some of it you know you look back at it and you can you can kind of go well it it was immature and it was stupid and it was you know wrong but was it really that important or you can kind of look at it and say he just started the process of removing all of the guardrails mm -hmm. that surround the conversation so that people don't know what's fact anymore they don't know what's reasonable or an unreasonable thing to say to or about an opponent anymore. And where I want to go with that is that obviously the question of whether or not we're going to see the restoration of some guardrails in how people conduct themselves who are in politics. That's one part of my question, I guess. Um, or whether we're going to see a continued escalation of that say anything about your opponent and people will shrug it off or they'll be titillated by it or whatever, but it'll it'll have some positive effect for the person who's doing it. But the other question is about media. In you used to be a journalist, I think, uh, at an earlier point yeah. in your career. You're kind of halfway know, back there again, yeah. Right, you do a lot of work in journalism right now, and um, there's Fox News, there's OAN, there's Newsmax, there's Breitbart, um, mm -hmm. and now we're. It, it kind of feels like we're watching a. Uh, a kind of an arms race develop where progressive voters feel like they need their own media 
And I'm kind of wondering, is that the future, that the arms race is going to escalate? Or is there some way and, and, a, and a better argument to be made for trying to step back from that a little bit and try to find some ground in the media? And probably CNN is, is one of the best positioned organizations to sort of figure out, do we want to be on the side of that progressive kind of thought process because the republicanism has become so hard for us to really uh, validate or do we want to be that uh, broadcast version of I don't want to say the New York Times but you know what I mean that that, yes. that more yeah. of the news that's fit to report on yeah. where do you see that going well those are two very meaty questions so let me tackle them in sequence in in terms of uh, uh, of norms and as you I think guardrails is a wonderful word for them um, you know what uh, Trump set out to do from the beginning. I mean, if, if it were just about name calling, that'd be one thing. But what Trump set out to do is invalidate uh, any institution that could be a challenge to him. It was classic authoritarian stuff. So, uh, you know, his view of the media, obviously, and he told Leslie Stahl this in an interview before he even took office or in an aside at an interview where she asked him why he was attacking the press all the time. He said, because when they wrote, when they, when you guys say bad stuff about me, I don't want people to believe it. I mean, he was very open about that. It was a strategy uh, and it was pretty effective, uh, at least with his base. Uh, but, you know, um, turning the U.S. Justice Department essentially into a political organ uh, or trying to uh, was was shocking, disregarding the uh, the authority of Congress to provide oversight and just flouting that uh, was uh, and kicking everything to the courts and kicking it down the field and basically saying, no, we're not going to we're just not going to do that. I mean, think back. We're not that far removed from uh, the summer of 2019 when we learned that the uh, uh, president had called the president of another country and tried to enlist him in the in the uh, in the exercise of trying to impeach one of his opponents, Joe Biden, which, by the way, tells you how much he feared Biden then for reasons you as a pollster can appreciate. Biden was an inconvenient opponent for Trump uh, to demonize. Uh, but uh, I mean, that was that was appalling. And the fact that Republicans uh, almost to a person rallied to his side and defended them uh, tells you just how much things have eroded. I think that what we've learned, first of all, is that democracy depends on the um, sensibilities of the people we elect and, the, the, and their commitment to the precepts of democracy. It's not a self-perpetuating thing. It requires um, commitment. Uh, on the part of people who hold office and on the part of voters to demand it. Um, but it, this bleeds into your second question, Bruce, which is how the media environment has changed some of this. Uh, you know, we now have sitting in the United States Congress um, representatives of QAnon, which is this crazy kind of right wing uh, conspiracy uh, theory that uh, grew up almost overnight on the internet uh, that you know suggests that uh, you know that, that, that there's this deep state that was out to destroy Trump and that was involved in a global pedophilia ring and that you know Democrats were all part of it and so on and 
you know, he was well, he welcomed them into the White House and he refused to criticize them. So, you know, this is a, we, we live in a media environment that makes um, this problem so much worse because it's one thing if we have a set of facts upon which we all agree and then we can disagree on what we do about them. But if, if people can just make stuff up and millions of people believe it and politicians sort of weaponize that, that is a real challenge to democracy. And I don't have a ready answer for it. In terms of the media, you know, I've always said that one of the challenges for um, news organizations is that um, the news media is both a trust and a business. And um, they, the trust is, is obvious and it's the one you speak of. And one I take very seriously as a, as someone who started in journalism and is ending in journalism. And, uh, I think the people at CNN take it seriously as well as do many news organizations. But there's also pressure to get eyeballs and clicks. And, you know, one of Donald Trump's uh, great inspirations is that if you are willing to light yourself on fire, people will come. And, you know, he, he is, uh, turns out made of asbestos and can light himself on fire on a daily basis. But, um, it, you know, it's hard if you are in the clicks business, if you're in the eyeball business, not to cover the fire. And, uh, so I think this is something, you know, I don't have a ready answer for it. It's something that we have to work out, but I think we need to redouble our commitment to, uh, truth and facts. And I, we have to, you know, we, we can blame it on the news media. We can blame it on the politicians, but citizens have an obligation as well mm-hmm. to, uh, to question what they see, to, uh, to step outside their media silo and, uh, see what the discussion is outside of there to not treat people who live outside that media silo as aliens. Uh, I mean, th- there is a more of a responsibility on, on, on citizens of a democracy, uh, to, to meet their responsibilities. So we'll see, but, um, it's, uh, it's an unsettling time. You know, David, it, it, it says something that we're almost 20 minutes into this discussion. There's a new president elected six weeks ago, whenever that was, and will be inaugurated in, you know, 30 days or so. Yes. And yet we've only mentioned his name once, and that was in reference to something Trump did <laughs> you know, right. a year and well, a half ago. A feral, that's, a, that's a feral genius of Trump I was talking about. Exactly. Although when you said we were at 20 minutes in, I thought this was going to be a commentary on my wordy answers. But anyway, <laughs> yeah. no, go ahead. Your answers are no more wordy than Bruce's questions. <laughs> but that's fine. That's good because this, uh, this, is, this is great stuff. But let me ask let, – let me bring um, – 46, the next president of the United States, yeah. in, into this discussion for a bit because this is the the, the landscape that he lands on yeah. that we've been discussing here for 20 minutes. And mm-hmm. so the question, I mean, you've been there before. You know what those first days are like when you came in and uh, after the 2008 yeah. election with uh, President Obama, there was great expectation right. and great promise. And, and those, a big crisis. And a big crisis none of which is is easy to deliver on, not only in the short term, but even in the long term. So what kind of a situation is, is uh, Joe Biden facing as he prepares to take over? I mean, he's looked pretty good in these these past weeks, not not falling for the bait often, uh, working on putting his team together, and, and, and for the most part, it looks like a pretty impressive team. But 
everything starts January 20th when he has to start delivering on great expectation and great hope on the part of the American people and people outside of of your country. So what does that task look like from someone who's witnessed something similar in the past? Yeah, difficult. I mean, look, I used to say that uh, Obama arrived in under uh, uh, the most challenging set of circumstances of any president since Franklin Roosevelt, because there were two wars raging, uh, 180,000 or so troops in active war zones, uh, and uh, the worst economic crisis since the Great Depression. Uh, and uh, But in some, some ways, Biden has a more difficult task because he's arriving in the midst of a raging pandemic. And yes, we have vaccines. And yes, that holds out great hope that by the end of the year, things will be better. But in the interim, there's been a lot of pain, suffering and loss um, and uh, and concomitant uh, uh, economic issues that have touched millions and millions of lives. Um, and that's on top of, you know, long term trends that have uh, exacerbated the inequality in our economy and have divided the country uh, between people who work with their hands and people who uh, work at computers, uh, computer screens. Uh, And um, so, uh, you know, and on top of that, he has this environment that we just discussed. Um, He has a divided Congress. We'll see on January 5th if he can win two seats in Georgia and take control of the Senate. That's an uphill battle for him. But uh, I can attest to the fact that when, you know, you're a Democratic president with Mitch McConnell running the Senate, it's a difficult, it's a difficult task. Um, We had 58 senators and it wasn't easy. You know, we had more than a majority. Um, So, yeah, he's got a lot of issues. Joe Biden is my friend. I think he's handled himself incredibly well. In some ways, he is the, the right person for this moment. Not in some ways, in many ways, he's the right person for this moment because of his temperament and his approach uh, to politics. But I can't help thinking that he's a little bit like the dog who caught the car. You know, I mean, it's not going to be easy. And um, the one thing that I will say he has going for him is um, if if they can land this vaccine project and and it comes off well and um on, on, on the schedule that everyone hopes, uh, I think that will be a shot, shot in the arm, both literally and figuratively to the country and to the economy, uh, which will be helpful to him. He will have uh, delivered some things that are, uh, you know, fundamental. So that, that is working in his favor, but it is going to be a real minefield. And by the way, you sitting in, uh, in another country, uh, uh, you know, you, you can also appreciate rebuilding the alliances that have been shredded by Trump. He, it's not just domestic institutions and that he has he has sundered. It's also global institutions and global alliances. And Biden's going to have to spend some time on that. So, um, yeah, he's got his he's got a full plate here. That's sort of where I wanted to go next, David, is that the whole subject of American exceptionalism is. is you may or may not know uh, polls in our country always show that Canadians think Americans are their best friends. There's a lot of admiration for the country. And historically, I think the reverse has also been true. Yeah, uh, absolutely. So 
you know, Trump was obviously very disruptive to that sense of, well, are, are we friends? Are we allies? Are we trading partners? Do we do we share the same values? And but separating that out, because Trump was obviously an anomaly in many ways. And here he, you know, I think you probably know this, but um, if we were a state, we would have been the bluest state uh, in terms of how many people wouldn't have voted for Trump had they had a, a, an option to here. The number is about 80 percent. Yes. Uh, but hearing Americans talk about American exceptionalism through the last four or five years, maybe even a little bit longer than that, has become a little bit more challenging for Canadians to kind of wrap their heads around and understand where is that really going? I think the, you know, it's one thing for, I think people can say technology, financial uh, market developments, um, political leadership, military leadership, diplomatic leadership over many years. America earned the right to say we are that country in the world that does this. More recently, I think people have said, found themselves in this country kind of going, guns are out of control. Um, climate change is not being taken seriously. Um, alliances are being busted up or threatened or challenged. The idea of free trade um, is not something that there's a, a kind of a consistent level mm -hmm. of enthusiasm or support for. And yet, there still is almost a reflex, and it's the opposite of the humility reflex in Canada, where we say, well, we're good, but we're not, you know, we're not going to say we're the best. And it's very common for Canadians to hear Americans say, we're the only country in the world that could do X or Y, the only country in the world where this could happen. And usually the, the sense of pride around that is is something that I think we kind of admire, but also under is it shaken? Where is yeah, it? Yeah. How is this? What's the next chapter of that story? Well, look, I, I am a big believer in American exceptionalism. In part, I'm, I'm, the, I'm the son of an immigrant who, by the way, spent a year in, uh, in Canada before he came to the U.S. But, um, and, you know, my father came with nothing. Uh, and I ended up as a senior advisor to the president of the United States and with all kinds of opportunity. Um, and, you know, I, I, and I believe in, in, in that. I believe in American exceptionalism. And I, and I think one of the things that's made America exceptional is America's ability to turn the lens on itself at times and self-correct. Um, and, you know, one hopes we will see that again, but against that, um, and this isn't just common to America, you know, I don't think that we have fully gotten our arms around the, the sort of uh, so the social and political implications of rapid change that technology has brought that mass migration has brought and um you know i'm thinking a lot about this lately because um i don't think uh the democratic party will ever be a uh, a strong governing party if it cedes 80% of the counties in this country to the Republicans as they did in this election. And, um, you know, the Democratic Party right now is a metropolitan party and it dominates the big cities and now the suburbs, which has given, gave Biden the chance to win. But you get outside of those and it's very, very bleak. And I started thinking a lot about, I've been thinking a lot about why that is. 
And I think it, a lot of it has to do with the fact that the Democratic Party has become sort of an alliance of college-educated voters uh, and minority voters, um, uh, college-educated voters who and, and college-educated uh, uh, politicians, and we tend to moralize about issues. I, I believe more deeply, I believe as deeply as anyone that we have a climate crisis that we need to address. And the U.S. has to play a role given the uh, the, the nature of our contribution to that problem. Uh, but we can see of the effects of it all over our country. And yet this is a, a this has been a divisive issue. Why? Because uh, while I may feel that way, and that may be the fact, um, it's also true that there are a lot of people in this country who make their living by extracting energy from the ground, by building pipeline, by doing things, by working at energy plants. And their feeling is, what happens to me? What does this mean to me? Uh, uh, you know, that is a, that's a fault line. This whole issue, uh, we have a terrible legacy in this country on race that goes back 400 years that we have never fully confronted. We act as if it's in the past. Well, it's not entirely in the past. Systemic racism is a reality, uh, and we need to address it. And uh, uh, and that's become painfully clear all over again this summer, uh, this past summer. But if you, there are wide swaths of this country uh, in rural and small town communities that have been devastated by economic change, where people are struggling to make a living, where drug use is now overrun communities and so on and those people they don't they don't uh they, they don't see the, they, they hear these discussions and they say well why why are we taking care of those people and not us why are we on our own and they you know they say we give handouts to poor minorities and we give bailouts to wall street and we're left to struggle for ourselves and they become radicalized and that's trump's constituency so the real answer is to address the concerns of people in those communities and and resist the um, resist the easy uh, chance to uh, weaponize these issues and turn them into wedge uh, issues. Um, and that's going to take a lot of discipline and a lot of focus. Um, but that that's what needs to be done, uh, or we're going to be we're just going to this thing we're going to wallow in the same. And American exceptionalism will be threatened uh, by that. Yeah, yeah. Let me um, let me bring up the uh, the six letter word that is sort of dominant and probably will remain so <laughs> over the next few weeks, and that uh, that's pardon. Yeah, and I I want to get. I would call it a seven-letter word, pardons. Yeah, right. Uh, I don't think it's just going to be a pardon. Well, in in some ways, it's, it's it's you know, for the lack of a better word, the brilliance of Trump that he's laid the groundwork for this for weeks, if not months, that it would be a shock to everyone if he didn't pardon or pardon, <laughs> pardon a number of right. people at this point. So you kind of assume this is coming. Um, does he... Like, how do you see the pardon story unfolding? I mean, he could do it. He could pardon I, his family, his friends, himself. He could do, you know, as, as some believe that, that you know, he'll step down with two days to go and Pence will come in and pardon everybody, including Trump. Um, 
or he could surprise everybody and not do it. I, you know, it seems like unlikely that that's going to happen. I actually had, I had a theory the other day that uh, (laughs) it will sound very much off the wall, but in one way to get him around this whole family thing is that in light of Hunter Biden now being investigated on the accounting thing, on the tax evasion, that when when Trump lays out all his pardons, he includes Hunter Biden, and he says, you know, we can't we can't have the families of of, of people who who run for the the highest office in the land uh, tainted in such a way, and so you know he, he kind of gets around the whole sons and daughters pardoning thing. Anyway, that yeah. that's kind of off the wall, but that's, uh, that's so diabolical that I don't even think that he. And I, I think he he's so bitter that I don't think that, that he, he could allow, you know, consistency is not a real concern of his. So right. I'm not sure that 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 is a scenario, nor I, I think the Pence thing is unlikely only because um, Pence uh, is going to be thinking about his own uh, future. And unless he believes that Trump is not going to run for president and that he can command the Republican primaries by being the guy who. And, but I mean, I, I just think that would be a terribly uh, risky proposition for Pence. The thing that I've learned over time is that uh, don't ever say, "Oh, he wouldn't do that." Uh, that is that is that is a losing bet with Donald Trump. I think he has been setting this up, this up not just for months but for years because uh, you know. Uh, when he said, you know, years ago that Paul Manafort had been treated very unfairly, that, you know, he, he, he gives you a tell and he's telling his constituents, his base, you know, this is all, this is all fraudulent too. these prosecutions. They're all political. Nothing's on the legit. So I'm just, you know, protecting. And, and in terms of the sort of prophylactic pardons of his family and Giuliani and so on, what he's going to say is, look, I know they're going to come after us. They, you know, they're crooked. They want a crooked election. Uh, they're going to come after uh, my family and me and my associates and pe- patriots who've been fighting on our side. And I'm just not going to allow it. And I mean, the thing, the script kind of writes itself. And I expect he'll do it. And one of the, you know, the other night when the news broke that uh, Bill Barr was leaving as attorney general, um, it occurred to me that he knows it's coming, too. And that, you know, he's carried a lot of water for Trump, not enough for Trump's liking, but he's carried a ton of water for Trump. And he, I think he, he probably felt like, you know what, this is these last barrels somebody else can carry. I'm not going to carry those barrels of water for him. So, yeah, I think it's coming. I would be shocked if uh, I think the most shocking outcome of all the scenarios you mentioned would be as if he decided um, not to do it. Uh, but I've always said the words that will never pass from Trump's lips are we could do it, but it would be wrong. <laughs> yeah. The, uh, on just in, you know, if, if he does the, the, the full slate, except himself, because there's still some issue about whether he can pardon. Right. Himself. Whether he can. Yes. Um, eventually that question is going to be leveled at Joe Biden. It hasn't been, at least that I've noticed directly asked of of the president-elect whether or not he would pardon Donald Trump. Um, you know, he's been asked about whether he'd authorize a DOJ investigation uh, and all that, and, and and he said, no, that's, you know, it's not up to yeah. me, it's up to them. But a presidential pardon would be up to him. How does he handle that question? 
It, it, it almost seems at times like a no win. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I was happy, you know, he's sort of suggested in different venues that he did not, that he did not want his administration to be consumed by uh, prosecutions of uh, Trump and his, you know, and other government officials there, you know, first of all, um, we know the history. Jerry Ford did pardon Richard Nixon, gave him a, a full pardon for all uh, acts committed during his presidency and probably uh, lost the, uh, you know, he, he only lost by a point in the end to Jimmy Carter. He, he probably would have won had he not done that. Um, it was a heroic thing to do, in my view, because he wanted to spare the country the the uh, the agony of uh, uh, of a former president on trial. Um, in this case, you have a, this would be a former president on trial uh, by dint of the Justice Department of a, an administration of a president who defeated him in a bitter election. And you know the concern is that it just be, it just consumes the country and Trump would make sure it consumes the country and whether with all the important business that has to be done and all the healing that Biden wants to do whether that is uh, the right way forward the counter argument and it has quite a bit of weight is if we're a nation of laws we're a nation of laws and uh, if he broke the law if anybody breaks the law whether it's a president or anyone else should they be above the law and will Trump have gotten away with something? I think that the whole argument may be bypassed because if the local authorities in New York indict him, uh, they would indict him on state crimes, not federal crimes. And um, any pardon would not apply. And that's the concern that the Trump family has to have right now. He can pardon them on federal crimes, but he can't pardon them for crimes that they committed through their businesses uh and before he was president, um, I mean, I guess he could before, but but he can't do it uh, for state crime. So they're still subject to that. And that might be what what happens here. But I think Biden's instincts are right on this. Um, you know, it would be really convulsive for the country. And there is a lot of pressure from Democrats and others who, who feel like Trump should not be above the law. And you need to send a message that no one is above the law even a president. But when you weigh all the equities, uh, I think Biden's instincts are right. But you can get a hell of an argument in any <laughs> parlor you find down here on that one. Yeah. Yeah. I have one last question, but I just wanted to, it, it, is, it does seem to me that the, the statement that Trump was fond of making, that if I did it, it had to be legal. That, yeah. that there is nothing that the president could do that could be illegal is, you know, I guess for people who aren't students of the American Constitution, just a shocking statement on its face to imagine that. Yeah. And, it's, and when you put it together with how he treated Barr and the Justice Department um, through his presidency, it's, it's even more shocking. But where I wanted to go with my last question is um, Daniel Dale might yes. become the most <laughs> Canadian to cover American politics, and he did it with... Uh, what maybe seemed like it started out as a party trick, like count the lies and, and turned into a form of journalism that I want to know what you think. I kind of look at it some days and I think, thank God he did that because he put a price on lying. And then other days I look at it and go, he put a price on lying, but did it matter in the end? Um, 
is there a license to lie that Trump has created and that Fox News maybe supported and that the body politic, to your point earlier, which I really agree with and think is important, which is that if voters don't demand better, they won't get better. Right. Uh, for all that we might, you know, load up on media criticism, that sort of thing. But this whole question of the relationship between Trump and the media and CNN did an awful lot of heavy lifting on this is a lie, this is a mm-hmm. lie, this is a lie. Where is that going? Are we going to, is there a price on lying now that, that will, um, make others less likely to lie or is Trump's experience going to make the opposite happen? I don't know the answer to that. I do think that, um, uh, there are, there are in fact facts, there is truth. And if news organizations, I, you know, the, it, it cast news organizations in, um, what appeared at times to be an adversarial position. And there was some price for that. I think, Certainly on Trump's side of the world, uh, you know, among his constituents, the, you know, the, the, these reports were uh, dismissed. But, you know, he is an egregious liar and a shameless liar and an intentional liar. I mean, his view is if you say, you know, it, it, we've seen it before. We saw it in Nazi Germany. If you if you repeat a big lie enough uh, and put enough weight behind it, people will believe it. And uh, so I do think it's incumbent on on uh, news organizations to say that simply isn't so. Uh, and that is true, not just for Donald Trump, but for people who anybody else in, in, in public life. Um, and, you know, I, I mean, if, I think Biden is a is a person of uh, probity and honesty. And if but if he says something that is factually not true, he'll be called on it as well. And he should be. I don't think. You know, I, I wouldn't blame Daniel Dale if he had checked into a sanitarium by now for the <laughs> amount of work he's had to do. Um, you know, sometimes I felt he was going to be like a, a, a jukebox or a, or a, a, a pinball machine that went on tilt uh, be, just from overwork. Yeah. Uh, but uh, but um, I, I don't think he should retire. I think he should keep doing his work. Um, and, and if only to show that the same standard should be applied to everyone in public life, not just a serial liar, but everyone. Mm-hmm. And so I, I hope, uh, I hope that he does. You're here. You can be sure that Daniel won't, uh, won't stop. I mean, don't forget, <laughs> don't forget he cut his teeth here in Canada on the, yes. the famous, if not infamous, uh, former mayor of Toronto, um, yes. uh, the late Rob Ford. Mayor and, Ford, yes. Uh, so he, he basically transported his skills from doing that. Well, uh, and, and, you Washington. know, Ford was not, Ford was not a completely dissimilar character. Right. Uh, you know, he was a demagogic guy who, uh, you know, shredded norms and tested, uh, the, the limits. Uh, and so, yeah, that was good, good training, training ground. But we Americans, we, we, we've now adopted Daniel. Um, every once in a while, he'll um, mispronounce a word in ways that uh, uh, betray his Canadian roots. Uh, <laughs> but, um, but we, 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 we consider him one of ours now. I don't think he stopped cheering for the Leafs and the Blue Jays and the Raptors either. So that's all, <laughs> that's all right. Listen, David. Uh, we'll give him that. Yeah. Listen, David, it's been great uh, for you to join Bruce and I this week. And uh, you really yeah. helped enlighten us well, on, on some of the well, stuff wonder, that's up front to be and, with you guys. and the deeper stuff. Um, 
so listen, good luck in all your, uh, your current ventures. And, uh, we're, we're, uh, we're regular listeners to your, a uh, couple of your podcasts and, uh, thank you. So good luck and uh, continuing with that. Thank you. Thank you. Great to be with you guys. Wonderful conversation. Appreciate it. Thanks. And Happy thank you, holidays, Bruce, as yeah. well. Thank you. Okay. Going to quickly sign off here. Uh, and the bridge daily will be back again in 24 hours. Mm-hmm.